everybody. Welcome to the Digital Hustle Show, digital version. Here we are on Zoom. And uh, I have Merlin from uh, Ortega uh, Brewing. And uh, yeah, if you could just introduce yourself a little bit and just kind of tell people what you're all about. And then we can kind of, after that, get into the journey of how you got here. Sure, sounds good. Uh, so Ortega is a uh, brewery that my wife and I started in Brooklyn. Um, I was born in Arizona. We recently came back to Arizona uh, after having our first child. And uh, we intended to to launch Ortega here in uh, Arizona. Of course, uh, things have gone a little sideways since then, but uh, we're, still, we're still kicking around. We're still working some beer out uh, this year. So, um, so just to kind of talk a little bit about your history as an entrepreneur um, and mm -hmm. as a business owner, and really just someone who's like been, I don't know, to be honest, kind of seems like brave and just like going into these new industries and, and um, what kind of started, you know, kicked off that journey that you had when it came to um, doing your own thing? Yeah, um, well, so in, in college is actually when I got started in my entrepreneurial kind of path. Uh, myself and a group of other students uh, started what is essentially now the entrepreneurship program at ASU. Uh, we were kind of the fledgling group of kids uh, that started exploring entrepreneurship as a, uh, as a means to, to, to survive, as to, you know, to live as in a true American dream kind of thing, right? This is around the same time the Shark Tank had launched. So it was like all this, uh, all these things coming out about uh, entrepreneurship and small business ownership. So these group of students and I were, were doing this before, uh, or at the same time that like Gary Vee was just starting to get into the small business hustle. Um, he was still doing Wine Library at the time. Uh, Shark Tank had just come on TV. Uh, like, so there was this big boom of entrepreneurship and it was really exciting as a, a young group of students to explore uh, business in that way. And I was already going to school for business and marketing. Um, so I, I actually gave up my, my college scholarship to do my business for a year. And uh, the business that we launched was, I like to call it a pre-Uber. It was a membership-based limousine service dedicated to nightlife. Uh, and we had two, two or three cars running around uh, in between Mill Ave and Scottsdale. Okay. And, um, it was exciting. But, um, you know, with those assets, uh, we were a little over leveraged when 2008 hit and people stopped going out and uh, we ended up having to close it. But it was through that I really fell in love with the marketing aspect. And then from then on, I was essentially just a madman. I started my own small business as a, um, it, was a it was a social media workshop or social media shop. Uh, so we were doing integrated marketing across social media, print, and advertising. And we were working with small business owners in Arizona. Um, but I really, I really wanted to kind of bite off something a little bit bigger than that. And so I decided to uh, drop the business here and move to New York to join a bigger agency and, and work with clients in you know, the Fortune 1000, Fortune 500 range. Right. And that's what I did. Uh, first client that I had out there was uh, Empire State Building which was exciting with the, with the cool. boutique shop that I was working in. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I stepped up from there and, and actually started working on Madison Avenue for an Omnicom agency uh, where I did a lot of video work and strategy. Um, and it was in that time that uh, I was working at kind of these corporate jobs that I still had this itch to do my own business. And when I moved to New York, I needed something to do with my time off uh, because I was, I was engaged at the time. So I wasn't really going out. Um, I had a few friends that I hung out with, but they, you know, they had their own things going on. So yeah. to fill my free time, I started homebrewing and uh, quickly moved through the homebrewing, uh, you know, rings uh, and hoops, started very small, one, one gallon batches, five gallon batches, 
bought a kegerator, started having 20, 25 gallons of beer and tap and with time in my, in my apartment. Right. Um, and then my, uh, my homebrewing friends and I decided that we needed an organization too. So we started what is now New York's largest and most diverse homebrew club called the Bruminaries. And okay. we went from, yeah, we went from five founding members to over a hundred and I think now 60 members in just five short years. Dang. Uh, and that's that I decided maybe a brewery would be fun. I've never worked in a regulated industry. I mean, I guess the limousine service was regulated to some degree, but right. you know, I never had to pay, you know, excise tax on anything before. So I wanted to, I wanted to really explore brewing as a, as a way, a means to, to make income. Uh, so I held my full-time job for a while, but I did this brewing on the side in New York. We had a nice little shop inside of a distillery in New York. And we uh, just started pumping out beer and we were working on a two barrel system. So there wasn't a lot going out. Uh, we weren't just working for the team. We had people come, bartenders and working with the distillery and doing fun combinations and, and things with them. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how we got to Ortega today and all of the kind of the weird business and marketing things that came along with it that I, that I still carry today. Right. Okay. That's awesome. That's, that's a pretty, pretty wild story. Uh, a lot of transitions in life, location, industries. Yeah. Um, dang. I mean, I, I guess both now as you pursue Ortega and even like you mentioned before of like giving up. Uh, your scholarship for your business, what do you think, like, is it just that you, like, felt like you had to be an entrepreneur, or what was it that, like, really made you, like, go after something so uncertain? Uh, I mean, I've always been a little bit of a, of a risk taker, I'll call it. I'm not, like, I was never a wild child. I wasn't <laughs> stealing cars and doing drugs in high school or anything. Um, I didn't do that until college. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, my, my parents because always you were an entrepreneur, freedom. probably. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. I wasn't selling the cars. I should never mind. Wow. Um, so, no, I never sold a car. But uh, my feet, my eyes raised me in a way that I felt like I had a lot of freedom mm. uh, of choice, you know, as long as it was calculated. And so they never let me jump off a cliff, but they did let me uh, make a choice if I could kind of convince them that it was the right thing to do. So dropping my, my college scholarship was a big deal for them. Um, they didn't yeah. have to pay for my college. Uh, I didn't have to. And, and so I was like, look, I want to take a year off. Um, I'll probably lose the scholarship if I do this, but I want to pursue this business. And uh, I had a small bank of money in a childhood account that I had pulled out. Um, I had uh, basically quit my job at, at the time too, and, and went full on into this thing. And my parents said, hey, uh, if that's really what you want to try, then go for it. And so I, I, I kind of kept that mentality throughout. Um, I've always been willing to take a risk if it's calculated and, and I think I, it will pay off in the end. And uh, right. with the brewery, that's where, that's where it came out. Like I didn't quit my full-time job to do the brewery. I figured out a way to design it into a lifestyle where I could brew it at night um, and I could serve on the weekends uh, and the tasting room that we had was, uh, it was in a strange space where we we're on the sixth floor of a giant industrial park uh, that they were trying to turn into kind of a walking mall. Yeah. And uh, so the opportunity was there for people, but it wasn't like we were going to be packed Sunday, right? So right. we were able to open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I usually bartended late on Saturday, brewed on uh, Friday nights, Saturday mornings, and Sundays. 
Uh, and so I was able to keep up the, the demand and things like that. But uh, yeah, that's, I mean, it, it was all just about being very calculated and strategic in what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. Right. Well, cause I mean, like, I mean, you sound like you were probably pretty busy <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like uh, maybe insanely busy. Um, how did you end up like balancing some of that out? Was it just that you didn't care and you were just going to go for it or is there kind of ways you like blew no. off steam? Yeah, there's definitely, uh, there are definitely things that, that came with that, right? Like uh, I didn't get to spend as much time with my wife uh, because at night I was you know, doing celebrant work or, mm-hmm. you know, I'd get home later than normal. Um, and then when the kid came around, that's when things really changed. So uh, throughout this whole time, as I'm taking calculated risks in my life to start these businesses, I'm also helping more years for my life, right? So I got married and then uh, two years ago we had our kid. And uh, when we had the kid, uh, it coincidentally coincided with the distillery having to move locations because their lease was up. And uh, so we decided we would split away from the distillery. We just started contracting beers. So it's a slightly different business model for the brewery. And we were distributed. So instead of time brewing and bartending, I was now a salesman. So I uh, let someone else do the beer, work with them via email, phone call. I would visit the brewery um, and check on stuff with them, do tasting, sensory, that kind of stuff. Uh, but then the majority of my time was spent walking around the city, going into bars, saying, hey, I've got this beer, you want to try it. Uh, it's available this way, this way. Um, and then, then I had a distributor that would actually make the delivery. So I outsourced as much as I could and focused on uh, just being the brand manager, essentially, uh, right. and, and working with people that I trusted and met through, through the experience of being uh, the brewer. Sure. No, that makes, I mean, that's, that's cool that you're make, able to make those transitions because I feel like sometimes people get tripped up and um, that's precisely why they don't make it. It's because they're not willing to make those hard choices. Yeah. Um, I mean, you get, you get fixated on, on what you want to do. Um, and I've always looked at it less about what I want to do and more about what I want the business to be. Um, and for me, I, I wanted a beer brand that I could call my own, that people could drink in the public. And so I, I achieved that in any way that I possibly could, uh, whether it was me brewing the beer and serving it, or if it was me uh, contracting the beer, selling it and just marketing it. And so right. that's kind of where we are today, too. I, I wanted to get back to owning my own tasting room. That's why we came to Arizona with the brewery. And uh, the COVID thing has really kind of threw a big wrench in that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just not financially viable right now to open a new space. The restaurants that are existing are struggling. The breweries are struggling. Yeah. Um, and I don't, it's part that I don't think it's financially viable, but it's also that I don't want to be another thing that someone has to make a choice about when there's already really good beer here. Uh, so I would rather send people who would otherwise buy our beers to places that, uh, that we know and like yeah. um, and support them in the meantime. Uh, and then we're gonna make that pivot again. And, and now we're looking again at contracting and distributing versus uh, brewing it ourselves. just in the meantime. Cause there is right. a lot of advantage to having a tasting room that I liked. Yeah, well certainly like, um, you know, I don't know what kind of, uh, if you're like a super social individual, but that seems like that'd be a great way to like rub shoulders with people and have a chance yeah. to introduce people to the brand and like really just have that face time. Totally. So, so the difference between kind of distributing beers to bar and space that when someone enters your space, you are completely in control of their experience there. Right. Right. You, you have uh, the employees are scripted in the way that you want them to, uh, you, you know, things are done the way that you want them to. 
the visual experience for the consumer is, is all the way that you've designed it. Uh, you can offer certain things that wouldn't otherwise be available in, uh, in bars. You can take more risks with the beers that you produce, essentially. And, and we do do a lot of risky beers, uh, given mm -hmm. the ingredients that we use. Uh, so when it comes to like selling out in the bar, I mean, you have no way of knowing if people are cleaning their lines, washing their glasses correctly, uh, talking about your beer correctly. But for the right. most part, you just have to realize that the bartender knows the ABV and the name, and that's probably it. Unless you have a personal relationship with them and you know that they're going to talk about your brand the right way. Right. Uh, so, that, so a huge advantage of, of, of giving a consumer the actual take experience when they walk into our space versus me trying to force someone else to talk about it and as passionately as I am because sure. it's my own business, right? You know? <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> well, you know, and we, and we talked earlier, like on the phone, it's like, um, you know, brewers are kind of like a little nerdy in the sense that they have like really like, I mean, like their, their formulas and there's math involved and there's all kinds of like crazy things. Yeah. Like you've spent a lot of time and effort and a lot of like small tweaks to get something just the way you want it. Like it's, you know, anytime you've invested that much into something, like you could be like the best person to speak about it then because you've had that chance to like really get it just the way you want it to. Uh, like you said, as opposed to someone just serving it, they're just like serving it alongside right. something else and they don't even know how cool it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the irony of that is too, that you might produce something that only you like. Sure. And then when you're trying to feed it to somebody in the bar, they're like, I, this is not, I don't want this. Can I switch it out? I'm like, oh man, but why? You don't even know the ingredients, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you get really nerdy at them and they're like, okay, dude, whatever. Just give me the lager, you know? <laughs> right, totally. Well, I remember that was something that was something really interesting um, that I actually learned from Gary V uh, when he was talking about like when he was asking people like, OK, when you try this, like how much wine do you drink? And it was like, OK, if you drink like a certain amount of wine, then you get used to certain flavors. So when like uh, the tannins or whatever from the skin of the grape like are really strong in a wine, like you you can get past that because you drink all the time. So you can like taste all the yeah. hidden like things. I can't taste nothing in a wine. I, I know if I like it or not, but like if it says it has like a hint of vanilla, I don't even know about it. Like <laughs> you, you surprised me. Um, so anyways, so it's kind of funny, like as I'm sure as you as an avid beer drinker of your own beers and others, like you have a completely different relationship with the complexities of a beer than the yeah. normal person. I mean, I, I tend to geek out a lot. Uh, I don't want to be that kind of beer guy. Or, sure. Yeah judging you for your choices yeah um uh, people do ask me for recommendations and i always start off with well what would you like you know yeah um and it, there is an approach to inviting someone into craft beer because uh if they are used to drinking a certain style uh, usually an american lager uh you know there's a lot of things in, in craft beer that can be off-putting you know? a lot of hops in your mouth can be a crazy experience for the first time yes um and so uh, you know, you try to introduce them to styles that are adjacent and then and slowly get them into the complexities. Uh, I really, honestly, I like starting people off with Belgian pale ales uh, because it's, it's similar in color and lightness that American lager is, but you get the yeast complexity and sometimes you can get some interesting hop things going on too. So it's like, oh, look, here's a whole plethora of flavor you never knew existed in beer. Right. Uh, and, then, and then from there, you can piece it out. You can say, well, I want more happiness. So let's go down the pale ale route. Or like, right. I like this funkiness. Like, let's, all right, let's do sours or, you know, saisons. Uh, so you can kind of divide people into a really interesting space with, right. with their palates. Yeah, I, I hope I'm not showing my uh, 
naivety in saying this, but I remember the first time I had uh, Chimay, I was like, yeah. I mean, like, and you know, I, it's not like I was like a Bud Light drinker, you know, but like, that was the first time I had something where I was like, oh, like, I feel like the, the flavor's kind of going somewhere. Like there's some transitions happening. There's like, there's a different finish than how it started. And I'm just like, I had no idea. Yeah. Like it was just mind blowing uh, to have that <laughs> experience. As and those beers too, because when they warm up, uh, those beers in my opinion actually get even better. Mm. Where if you're drinking Bud Light and that thing warms up on you, oh, no, nobody wants that. <laughs> you, get, you better pound two more and so you stop tasting it. Right, exactly. Ice cold. <laughs> yeah, ice cold. That's how I had my natty ice when I was young. It's like, this needs oh, to be as man. cold as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we kind of journey back into like a lot of the experience that you gained, uh, both as your own kind of marketing company and for the bigger brands, um, you've obviously gained like a lot of experience in, in marketing and promotion and stuff like that. So certainly Arizona has a pretty big beer culture. Um, I'd say just like craft beer culture in general is, is pretty widespread, uh, pretty popular now. Um, so certainly product pays into it a little bit, branding pays into it, but what do you really see people doing that are standing out well um, from a marketing perspective that people are doing right, that more people who are doing beers or even just small, other small business owners in general should be thinking about? Yeah, uh, I think the biggest thing that, uh, that a small business owner could be doing is, is cultivating their community, mm. right? Um, and it's, it's something that uh, a lot of business owners, especially when they're starting out, don't realize. They either fall into it or, you know, they, they struggle with just trying to get everyone and anyone to do their, to, you know, to do their thing. Yeah. And, uh, not, and the truth is not everyone is going to want your stuff. And uh, as, a, as a beer producer, not everyone is going to want every single beer you produce. Right. Or, or if they do, they might not like all of them, right? Uh, you build that trust with them and, and then you sell them a can. They're like, ah, this was not, this was not up to par with the last five cans that I've gotten from you. Um, so I think community is, is the biggest thing. And uh, this is something I really learned in New York, uh, particularly with the brewery, is that New York is such a big space. Mm. But it's a big space crammed into a small area, right? So it's... Um, what I mean by that is there are a lot of people, there's a lot of cultures and they overlap with one another, uh, sure. but it's all within like walking distance, which is amazing. Yeah. So you can have a brewery that exists uh, three streets away from another brewery and they weren't ever really in competition with another because of the traffic and the way that it worked, they both existed quite well on their own. And uh, if, you, if you read back onto some of New York history about how the breweries were established, I mean, it was essentially, it was every neighborhood, and I'm not talking the boroughs, I'm talking the neighborhoods within the boroughs. Each neighborhood essentially had their own brewery. And if they didn't have a brewery that had a brew pub or they had a, a, a bar that, you know, a watering hole that carried the other stuff that was nearby. And it was very, very localized and hyper-localized. Um, and that mentality I wanted to bring out to Arizona, and I kind of see it in some degree. You know, uh, you have the West Valley, you have Central Phoenix, you have East Valley, um, but then even within there, you have breweries who have done a very good job of, of cultivating the two square miles around them. And they bring the same people in every time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the, and the people that are going there are advocating on their behalf. Right. Um, it was just recently on our, our, uh, Facebook page for Wartega, we had, we made an announcement that we weren't going to be opening our own space this year. 
Um, and then someone asked for a recommendation on where to get beer and I sent them to the places that I knew were near them. And then someone else chimed in and said, here are two or three others that you could try that are also within the vicinity. So uh, when you have someone doing that on your behalf, uh, that's when you're really winning. Um, that's what like, that's what these Instagram influencers have figured out. You know, they, yeah. they have people who are just so uh, uh, infatuated with what they do that they're, they want others to experience too. And that's, that's kind of where you want to get. And that doesn't mean that you're spending ad dollars. That doesn't mean that you're, you know, running, uh, you know, running a magazine advertising or, or what, is, what have you. Uh, it, it means that you're, you're speaking a language to a group of people that understand you yeah. uh, and know what you're talking and, and want to learn more about you. Uh, and then you're empowering them to go talk about you somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and that it's, it's, you either fall into that or you, or you try very hard to design it that way, but you, you can't, you can't just try to market to everyone and, you know, set up your advertising on Facebook to go 18 to 55 people like beer. It's like, that's not going to work. You gotta <laughs> not find, to mention that's you know, extremely expensive. <laughs> yeah, no joke. You got to find the overlap of the people. Like, yeah. Like what are, what are people coming into your tap room? or your business, what are, what are they interested in? What are they like? Are they dog people? Uh, yeah. You can see uh, there's a couple of uh, spots around here that have a huge overlap with dog culture. And mm -hmm. so they advertise the dog people and you probably get more people coming through. I've definitely noticed um, probably two, I, I would say I noticed it the most in coffee shops actually, mm -hmm. where they really have a lot of overlap with like, um, their like other hobbies. So there's like at least one or two like car coffee shop places. Um, there is a place in California, which I, the name escapes me at this point, but it's like a, a bicycle coffee shop. There's actually one in Scottsdale too that's a coffee bicycle place um, where they kind of combine those passions together. It's in Old Town. Um, actually, the, both the car and the bike one are, but I can't think of the uh, cross streets right now, but. Uh, it's just an interesting concept to be able to combine those things together, to be able to speak to that. Um, if you had to give an example of what like, like hyper or at least pretty localized, um, like community building looks like physically and online, what would be your, your thoughts? Like, is it walking around handing out pamphlets in the neighborhood and putting it on people's doors? I mean, like, Sometimes. What, like practically. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, if you know your demographic and you know what life stage they're at, uh, you know, most people these days want millennials and millennials right now are in the midst of starting families and buying homes. So there's, you know, there's all those struggles that come with that. Um, yeah. If you have that understanding, you can, you know, and you understand kind of where they're coming from, then you can speak to them and, and reference those, uh, reference those moments in their lives and, and how maybe your product fits in, right? So like, oh, you goddamn kid all day, have, have a beer, you know? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so that, I, I think that's part of it. And you can do that both online and offline. Uh, what I think is fun is that, uh, at least with beer and brewing, beer fits into a lot of different activities, right? I mean, you see beer being combined with yoga, beer being combined with uh, painting, beer being combined with outdoor adventure. Uh, it, it's, it's a beverage that... Uh, is also known as a social lubricant, but is now being appreciated more and more uh, as, a, as a culinary uh, ingredient, um, also as a, just pairing with food in general. Yeah. So that it, it plays in so many spaces. And I think that's one of the advantages of, of being in food and beverage is that you can do all those things. Um, I mean, obviously not everyone you're talking to is food and beverage. And uh, I think what 
what you just need to find is that overlap of interest between uh, your business and your customer uh, and, and just try to speak to them in that way. Um, it's really hard without a tangible example in my mind, but sure. it, it, it is possible for all businesses to do that. Um, you know. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just think it's, it's sometimes it can be a little overwhelming, you know what I mean? Like, um, it's kind of funny, I guess, like the perspectives you have, like, cause I, like, I'm a Phoenix local uh, native. And so mm -hmm. like, I kind of view Phoenix as like a pretty big place. And so like, sometimes it can be intimidating to be like, Oh, like I need to make it here in Phoenix before, you know, the United States and the world, you know what I mean? But, um, sometimes even Phoenix itself can seem like an intimidating place to get like saturated into the market uh, you know my my history I think I explained I don't know if I explained it to you at all but a lot of my history is like in the wedding industry and there's like a gazillion wedding photographers in Arizona and so yeah. then it's like it becomes that much more challenging to be able to like stand out and look different and everybody's using the same presets for their pictures and so like they all start looking the same and it's just like it can end up being a nightmare to try to like um, really insert yourself in the market and yeah. so uh, that's why I was kind of curious uh, what your thoughts were on that localized marketing. Cause I think that is something that people are missing out on. And I think it's something too, to be able to kind of, you know, it's like the, the elephant you eat one bite at a time. You know what I mean? It's like, have you even started yeah. in your own neighborhood? And if you haven't started there. And it's true. You know, if, if you don't understand the people who are within, you know, one square mile of your physical location, right. are probably the ones that 90% chance are going to be buying from you. And you're missing out because uh, those intermittent travels from you know across the way, uh, five ten miles away. It, unless you're on the way to something that they're doing every day, like work. Yeah. Thinking coffee shops again. Sure. Uh, they're probably not going to stop by. You know, it's a special occasion. You really got to know the people within the square mile, square two miles of you. Um, and it's funny you talk about the wedding photography thing. Right? A very similar uh, uh, kind of attitude applies. So most of your business comes from referral business. You did a good job for somebody. They know someone in their you know, same life stage again because they're getting married. They probably right. have friends the same age. Uh, and they are going to refer you to, to that person. Um, and so you're right. A lot of wedding photographers do the exact same thing. And it's, it's why a lot of people look at a wedding photographer and say, well, psh, I could do that. Right? <laughs> but it's, it's the special skill that you bring. And either yeah. you're, you're entertaining or you connect with the groom and, and bride a certain way. Uh, you have specific shots that only you are willing to take the risks to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like those jumping fun shots or whatever. <laughs> um, but there's a unique flair you can bring to the work that other photographers might. And, and maybe, you know, maybe your clientele don't want you to be the you know, exuberant photographer and they want you to be the hidden photographer. That's a whole yeah. different skill set, right? And there totally. are photographers that are really good at just the sneak in candid shots and stay out of the way. You never know they were there. It works perfect when you're introverted, especially. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. like, I don't want to be here anyway, so I'll just hide in the corner and take pictures. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's really cool. So I guess on the flip side then, what do you see people doing uh, that like they definitely should be like, like knocking that off as quickly as possible? Like for me, like just to give an example, like I see a lot of companies um, who have like a social media presence, but then like they don't respond to anything. Like they don't yeah. see your messages. They don't respond to them. Uh, like you don't see them commenting a lot. And like, I think that's just like the dumbest thing in the world because it's like at that point, it's just like you're using social media as a billboard. It's, there's nothing social about okay. it, which I think is kind of weird. So I don't know. That's I like mean, the one thing I noticed. 
you're speaking back to my agency days here uh, in Arizona. And it was the same thing I told my clients too. It's like, look, be on the platforms that you know you can actively be on. And if you're, you can't, you don't want to, you know, you don't have to be on all five platforms, LinkedIn, Pinterest, you know, maybe your business doesn't even need to be on LinkedIn. Right. Uh, I think now most people are still on like the Facebook, Twitter train or Instagram at the very least. Um, but you really want to do the, you know, do the activities, the business activities that you know you can manage and do them well. Don't spread yourself too thin. That is true of all business activities, whether, uh, you know, you're talking about running the kitchen or doing the marketing. You got to be very, very focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean that you, like, if you're on social media, you need to post every day. Sure. Like, Ortega doesn't post every day. Uh, yeah. But we, we do engage with people every day. We're commenting, we're talking, we're liking, uh, you know, we're messaging with, with other people. Um, and, and that's still presence. It's just not a billboarded presence. Right. Um, yeah. And so it, it's just a matter of being focused and doing what you want and doing it well uh, and, and realizing that you don't have to wear all the hats. It's certainly not all at once. <laughs> certainly. And I think um, that actually transitions perfectly into our next question, which is, um, you, you've hired people before, correct? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, when we talked a little bit earlier, I just wanted to make sure, um, we talked a little bit about kind of like that solopreneur entrepreneur, you know, transition that it happens when you, you know, kind of more transition to a business owner over time, as opposed to, um, the, uh, only person doing all of the work. Um, what is it that you think, um, holds people back from making that transition into hiring and being that you've been on the other side of that, what are they kind of like missing out on when they don't make that leap? Yeah. Well, I'll start with the last half of the question is what are you missing out on? Well, you're missing out on growth potential, right? By, by wearing all the hats and doing it all yourself, uh, you're missing out on the, the hockey stick of growth that is in your future uh, because you're too focused on the minutia mm. and Hiring someone to even do one simple task, even if it's part-time or half, you know, quarter-time, um, frees up your time to go do the other things that are important. Now, you still have to be focused, right, because uh, you, can't, you can't be distracted in, in the other things. Just because someone has taken up this one task doesn't mean you have more time now for the other tasks. Right. You should really try to, you know, clamp down on, on what you're trying to achieve. Um, and so uh, I, I think the, the hardest part of hiring there's two things. The reason I think people don't hire a lot is that they themselves don't feel like they know 100% what that role is, right? They haven't defined those roles and put it in a box. Having worked corporate jobs before and run multiple businesses, I can tell you that uh, outlining the job roles, understanding what each one does and how it fits into the greater machine uh, is an important step. And you need to take the time to identify those roles. Uh, and you know, you can you can almost template them off the internet if you look up small yeah. business job roles. <laughs> uh, but like, you know, you, you don't want your waiters to also be the cooks as yeah. an analogy. So, uh, and, and I understand as you start, you usually are the waiter, the cook, the salesman, the host, you know, and sometimes even the guest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but you start to chip off those roles and you give them to someone else and you freed up your time to go to do other things uh, like market and, yeah. and get, get the growth that you want. And then you can hire someone else to fill another piece. Um, but I think what, what I was going to was that because you don't have those roles defined, you're afraid uh, that you're going to hire someone and they're going to, just going to aimlessly walk around and not know what to do. Right. And so you eat have up to, all your cash. And then just eat up your cash. Right. Um, 
the other thing I think that people are afraid of is that um, because they don't have those roles defined, they're afraid of hiring someone who they're supposed to be the boss of mm. and looking like they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Right. Um, and to be perfectly honest, you can approach that with two mindsets. You can approach it with the mindset that, hey, I'm not let me hire someone who's a lot better right and i think a lot of people tend to just hire an agency to do that yeah um, but when you hire an agency you spend almost the exact same amount of money for someone's partial time right because they've got other clients that they're working on too yeah if you hire someone in-house to do it and you can get them and they're hungry and they're young we've had senior internships before someone who's older than i am more gray hair which is becoming more and more impossible uh <laughs> Uh, to do something for us that, that I'm not great at. I know should be done and I know generally how to do it, but I, right. I haven't done it a lot and someone else can do it a lot better. Um, so, you know, the, I think those are the two big things is, is not knowing the roles and then feeling like they're going to look like a failure in front of the person that's supposed to, uh, to, to work you know, for them. So uh, you got to get over that, that fear. Yeah. Um, and you got to be willing to, except that someone out there probably knows more than you. Uh, in fact, I know that there are people out there that know more than you. There are definitely people out there that know a lot more about beer and uh, you know, I'm a Cicerone, so I'm, I'm up there, but there are people out there that know a lot more than I do. And yeah, I like, I like those people. Sometimes I wish I could afford to hire those people. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Cause it just takes things to the next level. Like I remember one time reading and I, I can't remember what industry it was for. I want to say it was kind of like for an agency thing. And they were just saying like the first person you should hire is like a CFO because most of the time, like business owners and like, especially like makers of things are not like necessarily like numbers people. And the last thing they want to be doing is like double checking invoice numbers. And like, if you've yeah. paid your estimated taxes for the quarter. So it's kind of, you know, we obviously, you know, someone, a CNA is going to know a lot more about that than I am. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, having a good admin is always, always good. Um, you know, when we started the brewery, I was doing the brewing, serving the beer, you know, and those are very separate time slots. But then on my other free time, I was filing quarterly taxes. I was paying excise taxes. I was, you know, ordering ingredients. And uh, to have someone manage the back end would have been really nice um, yeah. so that I could just focus on the, the uh, you know, the marketing and, and the customer engagement. Um, even hiring a brewer would have been, probably a pretty good idea but at that time we had just started i didn't want to hand it off to anyone now right. first thing i'm going to do as soon as we open is hire a brewer oh right. god i mean <laughs> i love brewing but it is not a great use of my time well at that point you have people to manage and you can't be brewing and managing and admitting and community yeah. building and i mean i'm sure you could but then you'd also probably hate your life so <laughs> yeah and my wife and my daughter would never see me that's that's true so can't be doing that um, right. So one thing you mentioned before that I thought um, we could kind of talk about a little bit was you'd mentioned something about focus. You talked about like focus on, um, you know, having those people that you hire to help focus and so on and so forth. What, how, what's your process as far as making those hard decisions on saying, you know, like this is where I'm headed. I'm going to stay focused. And that's different than being like unwilling to transition. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like, so how is it that you kind of determine your focus and stay focused? Because obviously as like a small business owner, there's things coming at you all the time. There's lots of decisions that have to be made. And I'm sure, you know, 
uh, you could even say at some point that you've been a little off track, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden you like sure. look up from doing on the work and you're like, Hey, this is not where I wanted to be. Like what happened? Like, so how is it that you stay focused? Um, I, I think for me, it's really difficult because I, I have a wandering mind and I'm, you know, I'll be doing one thing and thinking about another all the time. Yes. Uh, my wife hates it because it's, she thinks I'm not, I'm not paying attention, but I am. <laughs> I'm just halfway there. Anyway. Um, it's, uh, I think it's, it's between uh, the role definition that we were talking about before and then also knowing what you want your business to be, right? Um, if, and, and so in my case, I knew that I wanted a beer brand that was you know, able to be enjoyed by the public right. uh, outside, of, outside of my four walls. And uh, so making a pivot wasn't difficult as long as I knew it was still going to be the end road to that goal. Mm -hmm. Now, if, your goal, if my goal had been, I want to just brew beer for money, uh, the starting a brewery is probably not the best way to do that. You can just go get a job as a brewer, right? right. Let everyone else deal with the admin and the salesmanship and the, the bartending. Sure. Um, so, you know, really defining what you want to achieve uh, and, and then what you want your business to be. And if you know those two things um, and you define them broadly enough, how you get to those things doesn't really matter. Um, and that's, I think, I've always found it very easy to pivot because my, my goals for my businesses were always a little bit broader. Um, and I was hard path depending on, you know, what obstacles we, we encountered. The same thing this time with the stupid COVID. You know, I, I knew that I want to go back to having a, a tasting room because I wanted to introduce the brand my way to a new market. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't able to do that. So uh, pivoting again back to contracting, which is a path I've taken before and I know works. Um, and then we have some marketing ideas that are going to help bring consumers closer to us uh, that you know, will give somewhat of a tasting room feel uh, that won't involve any kind of dangerous non-masked people and you know, <laughs> disease and such. <laughs> well, that's always nice. <laughs> Either that or you drink enough beer that the alcohol kills whatever goes into you, right? Yeah, that's, you know, that's what I've been doing for the last few I don't know if that's how it works, but I feel like that's how it should work, you know? <laughs> exactly. I hope that's how it works. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so let's just kind of wrap it up with two different things. And you've kind of like already hinted at it, but just uh, if you could just kind of just lay out just for the sake of sharing uh, what kind of your guys' plans are for the rest of the year, mm -hmm. into the next year. Um, yeah, go ahead with that. Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, right now what we're doing is we're exploring the contract brewing path again. Uh, right. we've, we've reached out to a few people that we've met in, in Arizona brewing industry that um, have capacity and are willing to, to play along with us. So it's a, it's a slightly different path than I would hope for, but it is a way for us to, to kind of get this business, you know, baby stepping it up to, to where we want to be. Um, Part of it to me is really just the, is the passion for the product. Uh, I love making the beer, designing the beers, drinking the beers. And so I, that is the space that I want to be in. And I want to share those with, with other people. So um, our plan is by, you know, by definitely by the end of the summer that we'll have our, our first cans out for people to, to order and have delivered to their home. Right. So we have to kind of roll with the punches with the legislation, but um, the model that is currently available, I, I think we have, we have something that will win a little bit. Um, 
Oh, the other, the other thing I wanted to talk to you, uh, just mentioned was back when we were talking about the, the hiring stuff. Yeah. Um, so when we talked about the hiring, we, we had mentioned uh, that, uh, you know, having the roles defined is really important. I think the, the other big thing that people make the mistake of is not taking the time to hire the right people. Mm. Um, they think they have a role and they just need to put a body in it. Um, but as a small business owner, especially as your first like five hires, uh, you want people who are um, the right people for the bus, right? Uh, this is an analogy I take from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, is getting the right people on the bus and then as a group deciding where that bus is going. Right, okay. Um, right, so like we know that there's a bus driver that's usually the entrepreneur, uh, but then the seats are, you can sit anywhere on the bus. And so you hire people that, that are able to take on a little more than what they were hired for, um, but they're hungry and they're, they're keen people, and they're not just there for the paycheck, right? You, you need right. to hire those passionate folk to start and make sure that they're helping you get the bus to the right location. And then once you kind of get the ball rolling and you're, you know, you're on the highway, so to speak, um, you can start just filling roles. Um, but even, I think even up to you know, your thousandth employee, you should really be hiring people in those slots that are, um, that are going to take that role to the next level and aren't just gonna kind of turn the crank. Right. No, that's that's good. I mean, I think that um, one of the things that um, like some of the people on my team are like are, are pretty young, um, but at the same time, uh, they definitely come on board with some experience, and they're always willing to learn something more and do well and excel and do excellent work. And for me, that's been so valuable. And I and I told them it's like. You know, just as an employee, I, I've looked around and noticed like, okay, like if someone is willing to learn and willing to put in the work, like there's no end to what they can be taught to do. Because mm -hmm. um, there's so few things that uh, can't be learned to do well. And one of the things you really can't learn is, well, if you do, it takes a long time, but like taking that initiative is something that really can't be like taught um, yeah. or just being like a real go getter is something that usually is inside of you, uh, isn't something that you go and sit down and have a training seminar on, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, when you find people like that, you're like, yes, come, please join the team. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, to a certain point too, I mean, there, there are negatives to the go getters and sometimes they go get in the wrong way. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it really just kind of depends how you want to build your team, what kind of culture you want to develop. You know, you, you said you were an introvert. Sometimes just a pile of introverts is okay too, depending on what, what it is you're doing. Um, right. Certainly if you're, let's say you're programming the next big app, you know, four introverts would be awesome because you don't want them to be distracted <laughs> by anything, just code. Right. You know? So yeah, it all depends, but yeah. Totally. Um, so just to go on more of like the personal side, I guess, um, and maybe this is too heavy, but whatever, we're going to go for it. What gets you up in the morning? Oh, what gets you like um, fired up? Well, usually my daughter gets me up in the morning. Um, sure. and not because I want to get up either. It's usually just that's, that's how it goes. She doesn't know when your um, alarm set. <laughs> yeah, no, she does actually. And she wakes up an hour before. Um, and then when it goes off, she takes my phone away and, and stops it for me oh okay uh, yeah it's cute it's very cute um but no i think uh, i think you're thinking more uh kind of metaphorically what gets you up in the morning yeah um you know as a as a 34 year old uh 
man of one daughter and wife. Um, for me, it's really the family. Um, I want to get up every day and work towards that dream so that, uh, you know, when daughter is of college age, uh, we can live quite comfortably and not have to, to struggle and, and work on someone else's dime, you know? Yeah. So for me, it's, it's about building this business to a point over the next decade or two that we are, uh, that we're living a lifestyle that we really enjoy. Um, and that means grinding a little bit right now, um, but we're going to get there. And yeah. uh, that's, that's, that's my ultimate dream right there is, is getting to that point. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I feel that um, I do not yet have kids, but um, I have never, I, I, you know, I don't know if it's just me and maybe you can help me out on this, but I've just never been okay with just like normalness. I guess. Yeah. And like, for me, it's like, I never woke up and was just like, yeah, like, I just love to have like a normal car and a normal house and a, a normal paycheck. It's just like, that doesn't seem very interesting to me. And um, maybe it's materialism. I don't know. But like, for me, it's like, okay, like, I want what I, I like what I like, and I want what I want. And like, for me, that just requires an income and an amount of effort on this end of that, that just is too high and or not too high, but it, it, it is high. And so, yeah, you, you got to get up every day and kill it and move forward because if you want to have that comfortable lifestyle, most people don't have that. And so you've got to do something that most people aren't willing to do, which is stay up all night brewing and doing a tap room and having a full-time job and moving and the whole nine yards. You know what I mean? Like you're putting in the work to make it happen. Absolutely, man. So anyway, that's my, my preacher box on that. But uh, <laughs> cool, man. well, can you just kind of let people know where they can find you right now, where they can interact with you and learn more about you and your delicious beer that will eventually be made? <laughs> yeah, my, um, my favorite place to hang out is Instagram. So okay. you can go to Wartega. Uh, it's at Wartega, W-A-R-T-E-G-A. Um, I'm usually manning the helm there. So if you message us, it's me. Um, we, I, I, I've been lately, so I've, I've been lately, I've been just going around Arizona and picking up the beers I like. So we were at Mother Road recently. So I've been, this is what I've been drinking. Okay. Mother Road Lost, Lost Highway. It's a double uh, black IPA. Very tasty. Uh, well balanced. Um, so I, I'll be posting, you know, our beer travels there. Yeah. Um, until we get our own stuff out. Um, sometimes there's some homebrew stuff that shows up because I, I, I still want to brew, but I can't professionally right now. Sure. Um. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, we also share things like this. So when, when this is announced, you'll certainly see it on our Instagram and our Facebook that way too. So those are the channels that I, uh, that I linger in. Cool. Well, that's, that's definitely where we connected with Instagram. That's where I spend most of my, uh, my, most of my time. <laughs> so if people are on Instagram, the chances of me actually getting a hold of them is pretty slim. Um, <laughs> but yeah, well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, thank you so much for all your helpful hints and, and tricks and, tips and just like you know all the mindset stuff that goes into growing a business because obviously there's a lot to it there's a lot of parts to it and um thankfully with all the experience that you've had um you're able to add a lot of value to that so thank you very much for doing that and um yeah and then we'll uh, we'll be sharing this uh monday monday and uh so yeah we'll be able to share this out and kind of get your name out there and um so thank you very much awesome man. thank you very much we really like to talk with you